0: Amen. I'm going to give you three words to live on this morning. I felt the Lord kind of shake things up a bit in uh, our series, and I want to just, I felt like God wanted to give a special word, a special message for today. Uh, And it really was this, that there are three words, three words that you have to live on, three words without which you will fall short uh, in the coming days. And it's three words that uh, you do not want to face eternity not knowing or without or having a full grasp on. So I want to talk to you about three words uh, to live on. There was a, a story in the newspaper not too long ago, uh, a lady by the name of Amanda. She was 35-year-old uh, woman in Hawaii, and she set out for a hike in the forest. And what she reported is that she went out to just have this quick three-mile hike, to have a spiritual encounter, a spiritual journey. Uh, I don't know with who or with what, but that was the idea, to have a spiritual journey. And she didn't think she needed any phone or cell phone or compass or anything. She's just going to plan to go on a little loop in this uh, national forest and come back. Well, as she went out there, she quickly lost her path, and she ended up in the wrong part and couldn't find her way back. And she decided, well, I'm going to listen to that inner voice and pray to something and ask it to guide me out. Well, what happened is she ended up even more lost than she was to begin with. And I think she spent 17 days in the woods trying to stay alive on berries and natural water. Uh, And after the rescuers found her, she admitted that it was naive and irresponsible that she had entered into this journey unprepared, without cell phone or accomplice, uh, a cell phone or a compass or supplies. And CNN reported that story. And I thought that was interesting. And it's such a parallel to the world today that so many are on some sort of a spiritual journey or even just the journey through life. And we're set out thinking it's just going to be a good day. It's just going to be a normal life or a normal journey. And some people can even claim to have some sort of religion. We can claim to have some form of Christianity. We can claim to pray to God. We can even claim, like this young lady did, to hear from God. But yet what we'll find out is on that last day how many people will be utterly unprepared uh, for the disaster that is awaiting at the end days. Uh, I think it's this perfect illustration of how many may not have all the tools and the resources they need, even in the church, even, again, those who claim to hear from God, what happens if we enter into this spiritual journey unprepared? And I think so many people you could come up to on the street and say, well, you know, I'm okay, I know God, I pray, I hear God, I go to church, or I have some form of religion or spiritual understanding, I have some sort of tradition that I rely on, but what if this morning, if you'll just bear with me, what if this morning you thought you were prepared For that day. But on that day, you come utterly short. This young lady thought she was prepared. She had it in her mind what she was going to do with her life and her journey, her spiritual journey. But when it came down to it and disaster struck and things didn't work out the way she seemed, she discovered she was naive and irresponsible to be on that journey. And I think that is so many uh, in America today. There's been several times. uh, We've done uh, little exercises, in uh, uh, team-building exercises. We've done one here on our leadership team. We've done, I've done several in my my uh, career as a pastor. And what they do is they come to bring you in a room, and I think they even do it sometimes on wilderness survival or hunter safety. They'll bring you in, and they'll say, hey, you have these amount of supplies. You've been stranded on an island, or your plane crashed on the Alps, and out of duct tape and a bullet and a lighter and a match and and." you know, a piece of rope and a tarp, you got to be a MacGyver. Which three things would you take? Which three things would you use to survive? And this morning, I want to give you three words, three survival words, three words that you must know. Listen, you must know these words. You must understand them. You must grasp them. You must hang on them. You must keep them in your pocket every single day if you're going to survive the journey ahead in this world. Three important, three vital words you must have. In Acts chapter 16, verse 30, there was a story of the Philippian jailer. And this man, he was a retired Roman soldier, no doubt, and he had lived his life, and he was at a retirement package deal where he would over just watch this cell, but one day, uh, his world was shaken. One day he had some prisoners that were not like other prisoners. And I don't know if he had been troubled in his mind or something that it was Paul the Apostle who he had just heard say something or just the nature of what God was doing in his life. But he had two prisoners, Paul and Silas, in his jail cell. And he locks him away, ordered by the magistrate. And he goes to his bed thinking he's going to have a normal night's sleep. But something inside of him is churning and shaking, something inside of him is wondering what's going on with my life, how do I please God, maybe there's things I'm not settled with, is this the life that I'm supposed to live, maybe I'm nearing death, and in that moment an earthquake happens, it shakes the foundation of his home, it shakes the foundation of his jail, the cell door is flung wide open, and thinking that all of his prisoners are lost and he's going to face an execution, he begins to make that moment to take his own life, but in that moment Paul shouts out, stop, we're still here. And the Bible says in Acts chapter uh, 16, verse 30, that after this earthquake shook, he rushed in. He fell down at Paul and Silas' feet. He was trembling with fear. And he asked this one question. This is the question for today. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? What must I have? What must I do? What must... I have in my possession, just like these three survival tools, just like these three words, what must I have to be saved? In my opinion, these are the three words you need. How many people are ready? Somebody say, amen. Three words. The first word is this, repentance. Say, oh, Pastor Heath, please not one of these sermons. Oh, no. Here we go again. You know, there was, um, in my, uh, 12 years now as a, as a pastor and then several more beyond that working as a part-time person. I have helped through our churches. Uh, I can't count the number of people we've helped who have been homeless or destitute or needing rent or utilities or water or some kind of crisis or emergency. We've tried to help as best we can financial uh, individuals here at this church especially. We, we've we done very good things to help people. And I've come across, and Miss Evelyn can tell you in her 40 plus years of ministry that, that we, we, we hear case after case and coming in and say, I'm in crisis, I'm in desperation, you know, this is about to happen, I'm homeless or I have no food or no rent or utilities, I'm going to be out on my street. And then we in, in Christ like compassion say, well, here's how we can help you. And I cannot tell you how many times I'll get a, a response that would not be expected. It would be, well... Can you just do this instead? Can you just give me help in this way, in the way that I think I need it? And I say, no, sir, ma'am, this is how we can help you. This is the best path to your full restoration. This is how we can help you get back up on your feet and not just to get a hand out, but a hand up. And they'll say, yeah, but, 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 but. And what I've learned is that sometimes, even in desperate situations, when you think it would be desperation that people not always are desperate. They're not always truly desperate for the help they really need. And there's only been a few times, and I can count them on my hands, the few times where someone has come into my office in 10 plus years of ministry and has truly been desperate. Weeping, sobbing. I don't care how you help me. Just help me. I don't know what you can do for me, but please just do something. I'll take help any way I can get it, any time I can get it. I'm just at the place of desperation, and I look at my own life, and I can see that. And that sometimes it'd be easy to pass judgment on someone like that. And you think, man, if if I was at that place, wouldn't you just say, yes, I can. I'll take it any way I can get it, and I'm desperate for help. I'm desperate. And in my own life, I can think about in my past when I began this journey with God. And uh, I had thought that I had repented and I thought that I was a good Christian and I had thought as a religious person who grew up in a, in a spirit-filled church with spirit-filled family and parents and I read the Bible all the way through and I prayed every day and I never missed a church service because I had those types of parents that did not let me miss church. There's a plug there, parents. But anyhow, uh, I thought I was pretty good. I thought I was good enough and, and doing okay. But then as God got a hold of my life and I began to know what repentance was, and we're going to talk that in a second, but I, I begin to learn this word repentance. And there came a moment in my life where God began to ask me this question, just like I would ask these that I began to help. It says, Heath, what wouldn't you do for me? I had a long list of what wouldn't. I had a long list. I, I I definitely wouldn't raise my hands at that moment in worship. That was a wouldn't. I, I definitely wouldn't talk to someone across the street or across the aisle. I definitely wouldn't be one of those crazy people who would just stand up on a table and start preaching. My gosh, those are weirdos. You know, I and uh, don't, Lord, don't even think about calling me to Africa or some poor country where they don't have Walmart. I mean, or air conditioning. I mean, I had a whole list of what I wouldn't do for Jesus. You know what I realized? Heath, you're not really desperate for salvation. Because when I'm desperate to say, Lord, I'm pitiful, I'm at the end of my rope, I'll take it however it comes and however you can give me help. God, I'll do anything you want me to do. That, the essence of that word desperation is the same concept we call repentance. Uh, Repentance is this. It's the story in Luke chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, when Jesus tells of a lost son who had squandered his daddy's inheritance and gone on and lived the high life, the sin-filled life, and he had left it all. And he gets to the end of his rope eating pig slop, which is Uh, just idolatrous for even a a Jew to think about. And he finds himself in the swaller of life. And in that moment, he thinks something to himself which really is very profound. He says, at least in my father's house, his servants, his slave, they eat well. They've got the roof over their head. They they have clothing on their back. They're at least cared for, even the slave. It's even better to be a slave in my father's house than be where I'm at today. And he says, In his mind, he begins to say, this is what I'm going to say. Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And that young man takes the direction he was going with his life. He turns around 180 degrees, humbles himself, crawls back to his daddy who meets him halfway and embraces him. But the attitude with with which he comes with is that of saying, I no longer am worthy to be called a son. Dad, I'll come back however I can. Dad, I'll take help however I can get it. Dad, I'm not worthy of squat anymore. Dad, I am just simply coming home. Would you just have me? If I got to sleep in the barn, if you don't ever give me another dime, parents, those who keep coming back to you for help and for help and for help, you better be sure it's repentance. Because repentance says, I'll take help any way, anyhow, any time, any way you determine to give it. That is repentance. It is getting to the end of your rope brokenness literally defined as this. It means to change your mind. To turn from your course of thinking or actions. In the Hebrew, it's a variety of words. We say to weep or to mourn, to make restitution or amends, to make amends for the wrong you've done. It's not just enough to say you're sorry. It's to ask for forgiveness. In some, it's to turn around and go the opposite direction. And in the Greek, it would mean to radically change your thinking, to engage in a new direction. And a new behavior. And through, this, through these three words, I want to give you a uh, quick formula here. Is I'm going to tell you what it is, what it is not, and why it's required. And repentance is this turning from your current direction, your current behavior, your current way of thinking, and turning around to go the other direction. And we may know that, but let me tell you what repentance is not. Repentance, church, is not just being sorry for the wrong we've done. It's not coming to a service where the pastor makes you feel guilty and you feel sorry and you raise your hand and say, Lord, I'm sorry, and that's it. Repentance is a change, an internal deep. If you go back into the early portions of America when there was great revivals happening over in the first uh, and second great awakenings, you would find weeping and mourning over sin. You would find a, a desperation to be saved at any cost. And repentance The Bible says that even Esau, Hebrews 12, 17 says, even Esau sought for his father's blessing. He had squandered his blessing, his inheritance, by selling it to Jacob for just a mere pot of soup. He thought nothing of the blessings of God, and he squandered it. And when he realized that he had squandered it, he cried. He wept. But the Bible says that he wept basically for nothing. He wept with tears. But he didn't find it because the Bible says that he was still a godless and immoral person in his heart. He wanted the good stuff, but he wasn't willing to give up his self to get it. He, he, he was sorry, but he never repented. Repentance is not just being sorry, but it's being sorry enough to quit. But it's not just stopping bad things and starting good things for even people... And the world can stop smoking and start doing this. They can stop drinking and start giving to charity. Even the world can stop things and start things. But repentance is deeper. Repentance, the Bible says, is the death of self. It's an identity change. It's a character change. It's a change of lifestyle, of relationship. It's the end of your rope. It's admitting that my way of thinking and feeling and acting by its very base nature, is wrong and against God. And it's not just a one-time event. It's a status that you're in. So many times in in our evangelistic crusades and the way we've done church for so many years in America, as we come down, we have this moment of repentance, but it hasn't become the character of who I am. And I remember this moment in my life. I was struggling with habitual sin, Many years ago, and I remember praying over and over and God, God, give me victory in this area. God, give me victory in this area. And I would pray and, pray and pray and pray and pray and pray. And I would do well and I'd do bad and I'd do well and I'd do bad. And I remember one moment on the lawnmower going around in circles on 7th Street in Columbia, Missouri, going around a tree. And I remember the moment I just got so fed up with myself and my sinful nature And the depravity of myself, I remember praying in a moment. I felt this release come over me as if I had finally gotten sick of that sin. I'd finally, not that I wasn't saved, because like I say, it's a status. It's a place we live. It's not just a one-time event, but it's a daily thing. The Bible says, or Jesus says, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, meaning Every day I'm pruning. Every day I'm dying. Every day Paul says I'm dying daily. I'm crucifying this flesh daily. I'm repenting daily so that it's not me living, but it's Christ living in me. And there's these moments that should come over our life. And maybe you've made a one-time decision years ago. And maybe you feel guilty and bad every now and then. And then that behavior continues to go on. I'm challenging this morning, one of the resources, one of the tools you need to have in your survival belt to know the true definition of what it is, and that is a repentance lifestyle, a survival tool to get you through these last days. It is a it's leaving your very best efforts and surrendering all your power to the purposes of God. I'm going to say that again. It's surrendering every day your best efforts to the power and the purpose of God. That I cannot live this day with the power and the ability that Heath Harris has to live victoriously over sin. If I live every day in my power to conquer sin, what what I have, my own knowledge or ability or self-awareness or moral high ground or religious understanding or tradition, if I'm going to church to keep me from sinning, I'm going to fail. If I'm reading my Bible as a religious thing to keep me from sinning, listen to me, listen. Many Christians failing today, reading their Bible and praying, it's because we're not relying on the power of God to change us. We're relying on tradition and circumstances and understanding and preachers sermons and routine to give us victory, but repentance is... Is to the depths of my soul saying, God, I have no power in this area. God, I have no ability to conquer this area. God, I come to you and say, God, I need help any way I can get it. I'm that son coming to you and say, Father, I have no ability to live right. Father, I have no ability to think right. Father, I have no ability to do anything on my own. I am desperate for you to save me. I'm desperate for you to give me victory in this area. And why is it required? Because Scripture says that those of us who do wrong, which the Bible says we've all fallen short, and that is from those in the Bible lists a right array of sin issues from having sex outside of marriage to adultery to prostitution to homosexual acts to addicts to wild partying to cheating to thieving to greedy people to quarrelers to coveters to those who are simply living with selfish ambition, are living with the desire for comfort and pleasure in this world. The Bible says, Such as these will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will end up on that spiritual journey, having trusted in themselves and their own ways of thinking and doing and trying by their own best very efforts. But on that very last day, they will come utterly short because they failed to have in their tool belt, they failed to have as a compass in their life, the word repentance. And thus, in Jesus and His gracious, He says, repent and believe in the good news. God's kingdom is here. Before you can believe, you have to repent. Somebody say repentance. That's your first tool belt word, your first survival tool. Second is this. The second word you must have to survive in these last days is faith. Faith. You must have faith in these last days. Now that repentance, if repentance is turning to Jesus, leaving my life and turning to Jesus, faith is trusting in Jesus. I've turned to Him as that that Son has now turned to His Father. Now that Son has to trust in His Father to provide for Him. All that He needs all of his shelter, all of his life, to come in to his home and live in his care and comfort. Before we were living in the flesh, and now we live by faith. The Bible says about this crazy, radical guy, Abraham. Hebrews 11 talks to us a lot about him, and says that Abraham had heard the word of God. You just got to think about this. I want you to think about being in your home in in Mesopotamia, in the middle of, uh, you know, the... uh, the Middle East, and you're in your home, you're watching your T V, you got your Facebook, you got your eight to five job and, and you're there and one day you just feel God's voice come over you. You love the Lord, you believe in God, but man, he's about to do something you never thought possible and he speaks to you and says, Hey, I want you to sell everything you own. Tell your spouse, honey, we're hitting the road in the morning, just Put the cat and the dog in the car and put, it, put, put the things on the trailer and pack the kids up. Don't even call out of school. Don't even call out of work. Just get up and go. How many people have that kind of faith? This is real. This is a true story. He gets up and going and he says, honey, I don't even have a clue where we're going. I just felt the Lord say, go west. So let's just pick a highway and go. And the, God told me, he said, uh, he's just going to tell me along the way, take a right, take a left, go straight, take a U-turn here, do whatever. So we're just going to follow the Lord. And she's looking at him and she's thinking, who in the world did I marry? Right? Who in the world? What in the world is wrong with you? You are off your meds. You need to go see somebody. But he leaves his family following the word of God. Listen to me. By faith. He was following the word of God by faith. And years into this process, it doesn't get any easier Every step of the way into the climax of this moment where God would say, Abraham, even give me your promised son, even sacrifice, go to this mountain where I will build my temple later on, and I want you to sacrifice your son to me. And the Bible says in Hebrews that Abraham reckoned in his heart that even God would be able to raise him back up, that God, I believe this is the promise, this is the son you have for me. If you tell me to kill him, that's because you're going to raise him back up again. I have faith that God is going to raise my son from the dead if I kill him. Note, he didn't bring his wife along on that journey. Just saying. Didn't happen. All right? Faith. Trusting in the word of God to the point of great sacrifice. Trusting in the word of God when it doesn't make sense, when other people doubt you, when the whole world shames you. But I trust in the word of God. The word pistis, Greek in faith, it means reliance upon and trust in God. It means to believe that God is faithful and true. In many ways, it's a marital relationship, like we say marital Faithfulness. What do we mean? We mean loyalty to a covenant relationship. I have faith in this relationship. I am faithful to this relationship. It's both and. It's I'm faithful to my wife. I'm faithfulness. I have faithfulness and obedience. And I don't want to do anything to wrong her or betray her trust. I'm faithful to her. But I also have faith in. In her that she won't betray me. That's faith. In this relationship with God, it's the same way. Faith is I have faith in who he is because he's faithful. I trust he'll never betray me. And because I know he'll never forsake me, never betray me, I am also faithful to him. Do we hear? Are you hearing me this morning? It's faith in and faithful to, just like the marriage relationship. But faith is not. Here's what faith is not faith is not some superficial belief system. You cannot hear this morning and come and tell me, Pastor, I have faith. I believe in God. Huh. Right? Or I believe in Jesus. Hallelujah, glory to God. I believe in Jesus. You know, the Bible says even the demons believe in Jesus and they tremble, that even they know he's real. Okay, I don't care if you think he's real or not. I had so many professors in college who believed he was a real person. Muslims believed Jesus was a real person. Buddhists believed Jesus was a real person. Every sane person in the world, there is factual proof Jesus was a real person. Even the demons know he was a real person. But what do you believe he is? Because if he is who he says he is, our life ought to be different. Our life ought to act different. And faith is not without works. Faith is not without an action. Faith is not without producing something. James says, if you have faith, that's great. But I'll show you my faith by my works. My faith produces something in me. So faith is not some religious checklist. Faith is not coming to church every Sunday or one Sunday a month. Faith is not reading your Bible every day. Faith is not voting Republican or conservative. That's not faith. Faith is like Abraham trusting in the word every single day that takes you places you never thought you'd go or do things you never thought you'd do. That's faith. It doesn't make any sense. And I think our lives too much as Christians are programmed. They make sense. They're, they're easy to predict. We know how you'll vote in this election. We know what services you'll attend. We know what fast songs you like. We know what slow songs we like. We know what prayers we should pray. Even our devotionals every day are scripted by a Bible app. It's not faith. It's programmed. It's set in course by man. But faith is listening to the Word of God, hearing the Word of God, and being faithful to the Word of God. Somebody say amen. amen. You know, even pagans can follow rules. Even pagans can have good traditions. Even pagans can have good morals. I know some really good non-Christians. I know some really nice, charitably giving non-Christians who are nicer than some Christians I know. Right? But that's not faith. Faith is following the Word of God. Hebrews 11, 1 through 2, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That means faith is more than some mental construct. It's wholly trusting God's word with my life. Faith is being faithful and loyal to serve the Lord. Faith is walking differently because I have a spiritual worldview. I see the Holy Spirit around me. I see these last days with evil and light and dark in the balance. I see this world differently. That's faith. Faith is holding on to God's promises that there is judgment coming first to the house of God and then to this world, and there is a reward for the righteous and a punishment for the wicked. I believe that. I live my life according to that. Though that's faith. That's faith. And why is it required? Because in Matthew 7, Jesus said, In verse 22, he says, you know, there are going to be many people on that day who's going to call me Lord. They're going to call me master. They're going to call me Messiah. They're going to call me teacher. And many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not even prophesy in your name and cast out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness or wickedness. You are only declared right with God when you trust the Word of God. The number one premise and foundation of our Christian faith is in Romans chapter 5, and it's the justification by faith. What does that mean? If you don't understand this, please listen. It means that because of the grace of God poured out through Jesus Christ on that cross, that event alone was enough to save me. That event alone is all I can place my hope and trust in. And it was not any effort before or since that any man could ever do. There is nothing I can add to the cross of Jesus Christ. I can never speak in tongues enough. I can never give financially enough. I can never work hard enough. I can never stop doing bad behaviors enough. I can never preach the gospel enough. I can never cast out enough demons. I can never give to the poor enough if I do not trust that Jesus Christ was enough. He alone, I am justified. I am declared righteous with God because I put my not just mental belief, but I rest my whole life on that one event where Jesus took my sin became sin for me, and I took His righteousness. And not just with a mental construct of faith, but a whole life following Him, the Word of God. As Abraham gave up his life to follow the Word of God, so I too now have to give up my life and follow the Word of God, Jesus Christ. And I die with Him on that cross. I don't get to keep my own life anymore. I left it back there. And while I have repented and turned from that life, now I turn to Jesus. And as that marital relationship, I have faith that He's always faithful, even if it means dying with Him. And because He's faithful, I'll be faithful. You understand me this morning? The second thing you must have in your tool belt, your survival belt, is Faith to know what it is, it is not simply a construct of Christian ideals or moral character or behavior. it is wholly trusting, leaning all your weight, putting all of your weight onto the event, the moment onto the person, Jesus Christ, on that cross. and the Bible is very clear in Galatians Paul says you did not receive the Spirit of God because you got your life together. You receive the Spirit of God when you place all your life in the hands of Jesus Christ. You did not receive the Spirit of God because you spoke in tongues. Let me be clear. You received the Spirit of God because you gave your life, rested upon, that Jesus Christ was enough for you. Amen? Thirdly is this. Moving on. Thirdly is this, is love, is love. Repentance is turning from, faith is trusting in, and love is being with. In fact, Paul says in Galatians that it's love, uh, it's faith that works through love. Defined in the Hebrew, it's the acting wholly devoted. It's the relationship between two people. It's where we get the word Uh, Love is love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. In Deuteronomy, it means wholly devoted to Him. In the Hebrew, in the noun version, it means a loyal love or a loyalty to a person. Uh, We think about Hosea. We talk about his unfaithful wife, but God is saying, even though the world is unfaithful to me, I have a loyal love to them. It is a faithful love, a a holding on to a covenant love. In the New Testament, it's a phileo or agape love, a relational, sacrificial, intimate love love and love is not love is not fleeting the bible says christ like love is not something that's comfortable christ like love is not something that can stay within the bounds of a certain race or identity or culture or ethnicity love it, it knows no boundaries when it's in christ it's not contained to people who are just like me and listen married couples love a christ like love is not just given when it's received It's given even though it's not received. That's a Christ-like love. But love is this. Love is a product of our relationship with the Holy Spirit. Love in Christ comes as the measure of our true Christian life. The Bible says it's the greatest gift we've ever received. It's the greatest gift we can ever give. But... 1 Corinthians, Paul says, he says, guys, even though you could speak with tongues, even though you could prophesy, even though you could have faith to move mountains, even you could even give your life in the next terrorist attack and say it was for Christ. You could even have someone hold a gun to your head and say, do you believe in Jesus? And you could still die as a martyr. And he says, but if you don't have love, your life and your death were for nothing if you don't have Christ's love. And you say, well, how does that make any sense? Didn't you die a martyr? But were you really a Christian? We can all say we're a Christian. We can all claim we're Christian. But he says, but if you have not love, you have not God. If you don't have the repentance and the faith that leads to a relationship with the Holy Spirit, and that relationship with the Holy Spirit produces something dynamic, supernatural, heaven sent in you, it's a Christ-like love that is unworldly, It it is heavenly, it's not of this world, it's supernatural. And Paul tries to describe this love to us which should be permeating from within and from without. He says it's a love that's going to suffer long. It's kind. It's not going to envy. It doesn't parade itself. It's not puffed up. It doesn't behave rudely. It's never going to seek its own. It's not going to be provoked or think evil. It's not going to rejoice in sin, but it's going to rejoice in the truth. It's going to bear all things. It's going to believe all things. It's going to hope all things. It's going to endure all things. It's never going to fail you. That's the Christ-like love. And that love is summed up in one moment at one time. Jesus says the greatest thing anybody who loves anybody can ever do, and that's to lay his life down for his friends. And that's that moment that night Jesus washed the disciples' feet, and he served them, and he says, if you're going to be one of me, here's what's going to happen in your life. The love that I have for people is going to permeate through you. And when you have my love inside of you, it will permeate through you. It's not going to be something you can do on your own. Again, there are going to be many people come to me and say they did all these great things in my name, but they're not going to really know me. This is something you won't be doing on your own. You're never going to work yourself into heaven. You're never going to try your very best to get there. You're never going to please God by a lot of good works. But when you begin to have Him in you, Love will permeate. He says you'll serve other people at a place of sacrifice. You'll turn the other cheek even to your enemies. This kind of love that's going to come for you is going to love others more than you love yourself. And I can be honest and say, Heath Harris is struggling to have that kind of love. I can go out there and serve the poor because I know I have a checklist to do it. I can go out there and give my possessions to the poor because I know I'm supposed to. I can give them the offering. I can serve at the welcome booth and the kids' church. And, the, and I can go to missions trips. But is it me having all that and doing it or is it because I want to do it because there's something inside of me that says I can't not love people. I can't not give to people. I wouldn't be happy sitting here and doing nothing. And it's not a no one's cheerleading me and trying to get me to serve or give. No, 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 no. this is a Holy Spirit birth love where if I can't help it, it's just bubbling out of me he says, unless you're like that, unless you have a relationship with the Holy Spirit that produces the fruit of that spirit, the number one fruit is love. He says, if you have my love, you'll love people like me. And he says, if you have my love, number two, you're going to love God like me. You're going to love God like the rich, Young ruler. You're going to love God more than your own possessions. You're going to love God, he says to another person, he says, you're going to love God more than your spouse more than your kids, more than your family, more than your job. You're going to love me more than anything, not because you think i got to sacrifice things, but because there's going to be something happening inside of you. If you're truly mine, if you've truly repented, if you truly had faith, if you truly have Holy Spirit love in you, it will not be something you are doing. It's not something you can try harder to do. Please hear me this morning. I pray you have ears to hear. You cannot try harder to love people. You must come like that prodigal son on your knees to your heavenly father and say, God, I do not have what it takes to be a Christian. I have to trust you, Lord, to give it to me. I have to have faith in you to give it to me. I surrender. There's nothing I can add. I can't try to be a good Christian. It won't work. I know I'll never get to heaven by trying to be a good Christian by my own knowledge or power or tradition. Good efforts. I need Holy Spirit bubbling up inside of me. I need something supernatural working on the inside of me that makes me, that moves me to love God more than anything, and love people more than myself. This is the third thing you must have to survive a cold, calculating, premeditated day that is quickly upon us. Hear me this morning. We are in the end. You understand this? We are at the end of a spiritual journey where Jesus is coming to call his church home. I do not want you to enter into this last days unprepared. You must have these three things. And these three things are not one-time things. They are daily, daily things you must have in your tool belt. To repent daily, Jesus says to the church in Revelation, He says, if you do not repent, I will come upon you like a thief. You'll know not what hour I come. To those who are not faithful in Revelation, he says, If you'll just be faithful to death, I'll give you the crown of life. And to those who fail in love, he says, You may have perseverance, you may endure prisons and tribulations and trials. You may even not grow weary in your faith. But there's one thing I'll have against you, and that's you've lost your first love. You must love daily. You must have faith daily. You must repent daily. These three things you must have if you're to survive the coming weeks and months and years in these last days. I pray that this morning you hear me very well. I just feel this of the Lord this morning that we were to stop our messages for today and what we had planned to give you these three words. The Lord knows what He's doing. Amen. I'll ask the worship team to come. I'll ask you to pray with me this morning. What must you do to be saved? What must you have to survive these last hours? You must repent, you must have faith, and you must have his love.